the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Pekani, Siksika, and Kana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda Nations. This place is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Wait, hold on. What does this mean exactly? Calgary is a blip in our story. Calgary is a particular uh, scar on the landscape and on our relationship with the land. The responsibility of our nations was to protect the environment. It wasn't ownership. What Crowfoot had um, understood is that it was a peace treaty. Land acknowledgements are fairly common these days. They're often spoken as a ritual at the beginning of events, or shows like this one. But I'm often struck by how thin they can be when I hear them, or when I say them. It can easily become just another part of the script, a list of nations to be read, a token nod, and then the program moves on. I often have a sense of hurrying past something important, of smoothing it over, and I wonder, what might it look like to slow down and dig a little deeper? In a city obsessed with the shiny and new, I wonder if we can really set a direction for the future without better understanding this specific place and its history. And in Calgary, I keep thinking about the confluence of the Bow and Elbow Rivers, It's a spot that is often cited in land acknowledgements as a place of gathering for local First Nations. And it's the birthplace of the city as we know it today. It's where the Northwest Mounted Police established Fort Calgary in 1875 to pave the way for white settlement in what we now call Southern Alberta. But even that story is more textured than it seems, as we'll hear. Think of this episode as an invitation. An invitation to go beyond polished words. An invitation to linger a while at the confluence. And that's where we'll start. At the place where two rivers meet. There's something restorative about walking beside the river. I often find that when I'm down here, I regain perspective. It reorients me somehow. It brings me back to the flow. And I hear the same thing from many Calgarians, that the river reconnects them. The Boar River goes right through Siksika, and so I grew up around the river. This is Sikapanaki Lohorn, a visual artist from the Siksika Nation. I think just like specifically coming to like this location or just like going on a walk on the paths, um, it just like it has that calming feeling because I know that <laughs> and it's like really weird, but like I'm like, oh, that, you know, the river's going to be going down to the reserve. Lowhorn is casting fresh light on the Fort Calgary site with an outdoor exhibit 
on the signing of Treaty 7. We'll get to that in a bit. But I want to linger on the river for a little longer. The waves of the river make me think of something that Blackfoot elder and scholar Leroy Littlebear said in 2022. He was addressing Calgary City Council about the city's climate strategy, and he was talking about the difference between Western ways of knowing and Blackfoot ways of knowing, the tools we use for understanding reality. And Little Bear talked about how Western ways of knowing are rigid, but Blackfoot ways of knowing are more fluid. Blackfoot metaphysics include notions of flux. Everything is always in motion. Existence consists of energy waves, not matter. It's about energy waves. Everything is animate. In other words, in Blackfoot, there is no such thing as inanimate. Everything is animate. So we talk about all my relations. So when we're talking about all my relations, it, we're talking about all those other beings, those trees, those rocks, all those other animals. See, existence is a web of relationships. What you do to the land, to the animals, to the water, you do to yourself. When we think about Calgary, it's easy to view the city through a rigid Western lens, heavily biased by what we see in front of us, the built city with all its fixed lines. But what if we view the city with more of that lens of flux? Even the stories of the different Treaty 7 nations are stories of flux, of coming and going, of movement on the land, unlike the fixed city of today. My name is Hal Eagletail. I'm a member of Tsutina Nation, part of the Dene language group. When we came onto the prairie, we came onto the territory of the Blackfoot's Confederacy. Now, territory wasn't ownership. Territory boundaries of our traditional lands for the Blackfoot was the North Saskatchewan to the Yellowstone River, from the Rocky Mountains to the Cypress Hills in Saskatchewan. And, and mind you, everyone had title to Cypress because that was the only place on the prairie at the time that had an abundance of pine tree for our teepee and travoise poles and, and for our travel. It was all prairie right up to the mountains. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> when we had the, um, I guess, migration into the, the Great Plains, um, the responsibility of our nations was to protect the environment. It wasn't ownership. It wasn't uh, anything of that uh, material uh, sort. It was to protect the environment from overhunting, overharvesting, making sure everything is in its pristine condition. That's the responsibility of our indigenous nations' traditional territories. I come from the Stony Nakoda First Nation, west of Calgary, grew up there. This is Tony Snow. He's an indigenous minister for the United Church of Canada. I think a necessary part of if we are living in a space to be able to recall the names of uh, those 
places and those connections that have been there historically. Uh, but we have to remember that there are many nations that have uh, different words and different names in these spaces. And we have to learn to respect those histories. And so we can't come at it as a, a binary thinking that there's a right way and a wrong way or that there's, a, there's one name for the uh, um, Fort Calgary area. For us, uh, Wichispa Oyade is our name for Calgary. We also have the Blackfoot name, Mokinsis. We also have the uh, Tsutina name, uh, Gutsitsi, which is all of these names are referring to the same phenomenon of referring to the same idea. When thinking about Calgary and its past and present, Snow brings up a line he's frequently heard from his sister, who's a lawyer. So what she would say uh, often is that we are not part of Canada's story. Canada is part of our story, and I think that fits very well for the idea of Calgary. Calgary is a blip in our story. Calgary is a particular uh, scar on the landscape and on our relationship with the land. There was uh, long-standing traditions of places in Calgary that have since been obliterated by development. And so I, I talked to one of the pastors at one of the churches, and she was asking about the, some of the stories of the area and, and some significant sites within a particular neighborhood. And I had to say that, well, a lot of them have been sort of disrupted. A lot of them have been erased, dismantled, taken out of the way. And what we have left are the names. We have uh, particular names of areas. And so uh, Pascapu, Pascapu Slopes, Pascapu Area. Pascapu is a stony word, and it means the place of the skull. And so we also have one where we're talking about Shaganapi. Shaganapi is also a stony word that means uh, it's a reference to a uh, clawed necklace. And so the person that wore that clawed necklace, and there's a story around each one of these things. But in our environment, um, we haven't had a lot of connection to tell those stories. A lot, there hasn't been any interest. And so we have a lot of our elders who have passed away who have taken those stories with them. We also have that tradition being handed down to younger people who have uh, knowledge of these areas. Fort Calgary is one such area where younger Indigenous people are telling the story of the place. And this site has changed a lot over the years. For most of the 20th century, this was a rail yard. In the early 1960s, there was talk of it being cleared to make way for a freeway. Then there were worries about it being built over with apartments. In the 1970s, it became Fort Calgary as we know it today. So one thing that I really like about how this place has been described to me by um, both past and present users and, and employees and all people who feel connected to this space is that it's a very layered history. This is Jennifer Thompson, the president of Fort Calgary. And so what does that mean uh, in the sense of today? It means we're trying to unpack and uncover all of those different layers and explore them. And I think we're really prime for that conversation right now. The Northwest Mounted Police established this site, and it was really only here for about 35 years. And again, when you think about, you know, sort of the people who had been moving through this space for thousands of years, that's such a small 
window of history. I didn't grow up in Calgary, so I have no childhood memories of going to Fort Calgary. No field trips or anything like that. But many people who grew up here do have those memories. I totally remember, like, being in this room and being, like, a kid in elementary and, like, being yelled at <laughs> because I did not listen at all <laughs> in school. After spending their early childhood on the Siksika Reserve, Lohorn moved to Calgary when they were about 10 years old. But those field trips to Fort Calgary were memorable for another reason, too. I remember being, like, really excited when they would mention, like, natives and, like, Blackfoot people. And I just was so, I guess, like, drawn in when they would mention that type of stuff. Um, but I, it was, like, few and far between, I remember. On those trips, Lohorn would hear snippets of history they already knew from their mom, like the story of Crowfoot, the revered Siksika chief. Yeah, my mom was really like, this is Crowfoot, and, you know, he's really, really important. And she, like, I, I, when I think back, like, she definitely really talked to me more so as, like, an adult than, like, a child when it comes to, like, our culture and, like, our, our histories. And so she really, like, I would have, like, you know, child questions and she'd really have that patience and answer them and so I really like um like remember her saying you know Crowfoot was um like the leader of our nation you know he was really significant uh somebody that was uh like like high um like a high rank in our nation and um very well respected Crowfoot was a key figure in the signing of Treaty 7 in 1877. He was a peacemaker, which was contentious in his day. There were younger Blackfoot warriors and other chiefs that wanted to fight the white colonizers. Crowfoot wanted peace. Uh, when the treaty was first negotiated, we have a lot of uh, words from our elders who through oral history have passed down their understandings of the treaty and what it should have been, and then we have the text that was brought in from Ottawa and laid down and say, sign here, put your X here. They didn't even understand what was on the, uh, the text of the document. And um, with some of them, like the Stony people, they were, it was being translated from English into Cree and then into Stony. And so there's all this uh, gap that you find in translation. What Crowfoot had... Um, understood is that it was a peace treaty and the government officials and the Northwest Mounted Police really played it off as like, well, if you sign the treaty, then you will get to keep everything that you have right now, but you just have to sign it. <laughs> and so a lot of like the people, you know, they did think that we would be protected and we would be we would be able to keep our culture our language um that's what we thought right shortly after the signing of treaty 7 the first nations suffered starvation disease and the decimation of the buffalo a lot of the nations did know uh you know if we do sign this then things will be better but, you know, it, things didn't get better. And that's the unfortunate thing about the, the treaty signing. Today, there's a little better 
uh, awareness and heart to bring us back to these conversations, which we've never had. Like the ratification of the treaty was never had, but never implemented over this time frame. We merely had uh, government officials, bureaucrats, and people who were imposing the will of Canada onto this agreement and saying this has to be. And so the forced starvation of people, the, the forced uh, assimilation and education within the residential school system, the uh, facts of incarceration and the loss of um, status, the loss of rights, was all part of this implementation on a one-sided basis that we were never involved in. And even until the 1950s, we couldn't retain a lawyer to address any of these. Otherwise, the lawyer would be imprisoned and we would be imprisoned. So it wasn't until Canada started to enter into the United Nations that now we have a situation where some of those wrongs had to be addressed. So in the 1950s, you have the Inuit right to vote. You have the first senator from the Ghana nation, uh, James Gladstone. All of these effects have changed the trajectory of where we are going and why. Lowhorn's exhibit at Fort Calgary revisits the treaty signing and Crowfoot's desire for peace. The exhibit is a series of three illustrated panels that surround the statue of Colonel McLeod, the Northwest Mounted Police Commissioner who gave the city of Calgary its name. Colonel McLeod was also a key figure in the signing of Treaty 7. Uh, in AT. And so it, it means, um, it technically means they made peace. The first panel of Lowhorn's exhibit is a portrait of Chief Crowfoot. So there's a photo, that photo I, 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 I used and then um, redrew it in like my style. And then I, I also used a lot of like imagery from our own Blackfoot teepees. And then on the top, you'll see more Im images or like symbols um, that pertain to a TP when it comes down to the TP coming from a dream. And so I want to signify that Crowfoot had all these, excuse me, had all these dreams. And then the second panel, I have, um, it's Colonel McLeod and Crowfoot in, in that like really iconic image where like Crowfoot is standing and everyone else is sitting. Um, found that to be super, super powerful. Love it. And I think it's just like, um, you know, he's, he's standing and he's, he's like, it looks like he's like ordering people and like really telling others about what, like he was, was thinking of, of, of the treaty signing. And the third panel in Lowhorn's exhibit shows the confluence of the Bow and Elbow Rivers. It has the river, it has the grass, and it has, uh, like the city skyline with teepees and the symbols, the different symbols of the nations. And then across the river, we have the Hunt House or the Métis House. You can go and see the Hunt House and the Métis Cabin for yourself, right by the Dean House in Inglewood. They're some of the oldest buildings in the city, and you might be surprised by what you learn there about the earliest Calgary townsfolk. This is Matt Hilterman. He's a regional historian with the Métis Nation of Alberta. The first issue, I think, is that most tellings of Calgary's history before the railroad are um, basically are like, you know, the map, 
Mounties were here, Sam Livingston was here, John Glenn was here, and they just leave it at that. A lot of sources will say that early Calgary was a predominantly French and Catholic settlement. And that narrative is, is quite widespread. Um, and it's not technically wrong from a certain point of view, question mark? Hilterman has worked for Fort Calgary previously, and in his work has looked more closely at who these early Calgary townsfolk were in the 1870s and 80s. So I did a project a couple years back where I went through the 1881 census for the Bow River District and transcribed all the names and then cross-checked everyone born in Manitoba, the territories before 1870, uh, or anyone with a parent born in Manitoba or the territories before 1870 with the Métis script archive. And this was really interesting because when looking through Calgary settlement, particularly the, the portion of the Elbow Valley, um, from roughly the stampede grounds to the confluence, uh, you find that the community on the 1881 census mostly identifies as French, and they are mostly Roman Catholic. Here's the thing, though. Only three of those Frenchmen are from Quebec or France. Most of them are born in Manitoba or the Northwest Territories. Uh, and so cross-checking with the script archive, I found that it was something like all but five of these supposed Frenchmen were Métis. And that's what you'll learn if you go see these cabins, that in the 1881 census, about two-thirds of enumerated citizens in Calgary were Métis. These were families that already knew this area because of trade routes. This was news to me, and has only recently been brought to the foreground in Calgary, thanks in large part to Hilterman's work. I think another issue comes also down to how the word settler is employed. Um, Because it's experienced what's called semantic drift since the 1870s. So in the 1870s, um, settler was often, most often used to refer to someone who was settled in a settlement. Uh, indeed, the the subtext of, um, and and most people who were settled in settlements on the prairies in the 1860s and 70s were indigenous, Métis, Soto, uh, to a lesser extent Cree, and also there was a band of Iroquois in Jasper that had farms. Iroquois and Jasper. I'll just give you a moment to sit on that. Um, that's not where they're usually from. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, the um. Most of these agricultural settlements where people were settled were indigenous. And this subtext of indigeneity among so-called old settlers in Manitoba and the territories was such that early immigrants to Manitoba from Ontario actively distanced themselves from the word settler in terms of self-identification in the 1870s uh, because they didn't want to be associated with the half-breeds. Um... So that's, it's very bizarre when we think of the modern meaning of settler, which is non-Indigenous or colonial. Uh, And how that affects, you know, the the erasure of Métis from Calgary's historiography is the fact that, like, most literature uh, about that early settlement period will talk about the settlers without any qualification. And what people do is they impose the modern understanding of the word 
that is non-Indigenous and colonial, on to the people who were settled in early Calgary settlement. The problem is that the people settled in early Calgary settlement who called themselves settlers in the 1870s would not be considered settlers today. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground here, from Calgary's little-known Métis history to the signing of Treaty 7. And I want to return to the question I asked at the beginning. What does this mean today? What does it mean to acknowledge the land? For us, when we talk about the land, we talk about our, the influence of our naming, which every, every explorer and everybody came through from Henry Kelsey, to the, who was the very first explorer, to the rest that came by, they would always be running to Assiniboine people. So as you see across the prairies, there's all these Assiniboine names. And when we talk about uh, Minewanka, which is Lake Minnewanka, uh, which means, Mine means water and Waka means spirit, that that's sort of one boundary of the territory all the way over to Minnesota. So Mini is water, Sota is uh, blue. So land of blue water, Minnesota, is kind of this whole entire uh, idea of the prairie portion being under our uh, purview, that these are the areas that we traveled in and among and there are within them significant sites, like the Cypress Hills, which is kind of like our Jerusalem. It's a, a place of worship. It's a place where uh, we were pushed out of, and it was given over to the um, settlers and the farmers. But we still have connection there. When Sitting Bull came to Canada, uh, after the Battle of the Little Bighorn to seek a refuge, that's where he went. And that's our place of power. And so because we are displaced from that, because we are displaced from places here in the city that we can't go into, or farmers' lands outside the city, uh, there's this loss of connection. And that's really what, when we hear the land acknowledgement, that's what we're hearing is that this land has been taken over by someone else. And now we have to find a, a different way to be in relationship with that land because we can't shirk our responsibilities as stewards of the land and as people who are affected by what goes on in these lands. A lot of these lands are where our ancestors are buried, and so it feels like we are part of that land. If land acknowledgements often seem thin, there's a reason for that, says Snow. Um, it's newly formed. It's a newly formed protocol that we're trying to engage with. And when we think about it, um, what really are we saying? Who really are we making relationship with? And how is this being made meaningful to those that are receiving this information? And I don't think we've made the back end of that sort of uh, play out because we haven't had uh, the deeper connections. Those are, those are coming. Those are continually being worked through. And a lot of that uh, we have things like the Kamloops 215, we have the Port Alberni School, we have other uh, places, or Chapways and others that have uh, found the bodies of children. And so this is a, an anomaly in the story of Canada because it should not have happened. But now as we look at it, we can understand the atrocity, the genocide, the things that we are covering over as we make these sort of nice words to an acknowledgement, we have to then contend with the history and the truth about what happened. But more than words is action. 
That's what Lowhorn is hoping for when people see their exhibit at Fort Calgary. I hope that that they take away, like, you know, some even more questions for themselves, like wanting to know more about that Indigenous history. Like, I think, I, I feel so grateful that, like, Fort Calgary had asked me to do this just because, like, we need more of that representation in our history, and we need to provoke people to learn that Indigenous history instead of what is taught in just, like, high school or schools, right? Because um, personally, I was only taught things that pertain to the colonial history, right? And the only way I was getting the Indigenous history was from my my grandparents. And so I think, like, from the panels itself, I want people to really just be like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that. Like, I want to know more. End of line. Thanks for listening, and see you again soon. Listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor in chief of The Sprawl. You can find a transcript of this episode on our website. You can also find a new illustration by Sikipanaki Lohorn, who you just heard. So make sure to check it out at sprawlcalgary.com. If you're interested in further reading on what you just heard, you might want to check out a couple books. One is called The True Spirit and Original Intent of Treaty 7. Another to check out is These Mountains Are Our Sacred Places, The Story of the Stony People. That one is by Chief John Snow, the father of Tony Snow, who you heard on this episode. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. Our theme music is by Dan D'Agostino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.